0: today, folks, we are rewinding back not quite a year ago, August 4th, 2020. This was called Resist Domestication and Become a Feral Human. I'm not going to have a long uh, new intro to this one. We're just going to go back to the original episode. I think it really speaks for itself. I just, I just really want to kind of point out that not only do they seek to domesticate you, they seek to domesticate your children and your grandchildren. And if they succeed in the full domestication of those three generations, I don't know that humanity can ever recover. The solution that I give you in this episode, that I gave you almost a year ago, that I've talked about for years, that I'm bringing back to you today, will never change. We are not a domesticated species. We are a feral species, and we should be. With that, here we go, back to August of 2020, August 4th, 2020 to be exact, Originally, episode 2704, Resist Domestication, and become what you really are, a feral human. There's a better way to do
1: this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco
0: with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 4th, 2020. Uh, this is episode 2704 of the Survival Podcast. And this show is called Resist Domestication and Become a Feral Human. Um... I'm doing things a little different than I usually do today. Even when I'm doing a Just Jack show like this and I take a subject and break it down, I usually have at least an outline. Like I know kind of I'm going to start on this point, go to this point, go to this point, and finish with this point. I don't really know what I'm going to do today. Um, I sort of know. I wrote a, a brief article as the show notes today, and I'll, I'll pull from it a little bit. But I'm basically just going to wing it today, which is a lot of what I did back in the car 10 years ago and further back than that, uh, from 2008 through 2011, uh, 2010. Yeah, 2008 to 2010 uh, that I did the Survival Podcast in my car, and I had to wing it a lot then. I did still usually have a a bullet point list or at least a notebook with some things in it or a note card. Today I'm really going completely old school jack, and there's a couple reasons for this. Uh, Number one, when I look at what's happening to people right now, with this COVID thing, I see this this pattern of trying to control human beings. Simply moving faster than it's been moving before. I think this has been going on forever. In like fact, I'm going to tell you something my dad told me when I was nine years old, and I'm kind of an old man now, so that that tells you how long ago that uh, at least some people were thinking this way. And I'll talk about that. So I don't think this is new. I don't think this is new by any stretch. Of the imagination, I, I really don't. I just think that it is now more evident than ever, and and because it's being pushed harder, it's 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 more dangerous than ever. And I think that this has always been the case with both men and women, but I think in the last fifteen years, especially certainly the last ten, the push to completely do this to men who are naturally more resistant to domestication than women uh, has gone and reached a fevered pitch. And what it's gone to is including things like there's no difference between the sexes and stuff like that. I'm not really going to dig into that because that's that's psycho babble, And I don't deal in psycho babble. I'm going to talk about your life and what you can do to resist this and what you can do as parents to make sure that this shit doesn't happen to your kids. Because I'm telling you, the people that are in power, they, they want to do it. With that, let's go ahead and dig on into this. I don't want to take too long on this. I, I want to start out with a quote. And I'll tell you, this is one of these days where I quote a person who probably 99% of what comes out of their mouth I disagree with, but I'm the kind of guy that when a person makes a true statement, well, uh, they made a true statement. I'll quote any. I've even quoted Rachel Maddow before, and I probably agree with this guy more than I agree with Rachel Maddow. Um, this guy's name is Gary Yucovsky, and he is a uh, big time like PETA vegan animal rights activist that thinks you've sinned against animals if you ever eaten one, and, and obviously we don't agree there, but. You know, when a guy goes into a place like that, he might actually notice some of the things we're talking about today, like what domestication really is. So Gary and I would agree on that they've domesticated people. They've absolutely domesticated. Gary said, in the same way humans have domesticated sheep and other animals by murdering the strong ones and breeding the docile, obedient ones, the powers that be have done the same with the masses. And, And I do agree with that. In principle, but not in practice. You see, we don't actually murder the animals and, and and call out the animals that are the strong when we domesticate. We actually we actually keep the strongest and the biggest and the best for the purpose that we have. We, we don't actually want to end up with feeble cattle for raising beef and, and milk and dairy. But we do want the docile. So if we get animals that are not quite willing to submit to us then we do cull their genetics from the herd. So it's not so much the, the, that we get rid of the strong, we get rid of the rebellious. And that's what society has attempted to do through education, ostracization, etc. So what that made a little more sense with this than our quote-of-the-day guy My father, I was really young when he said this. I was certainly too young. I think I was about nine. I thought about this today, trying to think of the first time he said this to me, because he said it more than once. Um, He he put it this way, and I'm paraphrasing. I'm remembering as best I can what you would have heard when you're nine, ten years old. But what he said is the people that run this country have one primary thing they want to do, fully domesticate the man. They want us to be like dogs or worse, cattle. They want us to respond to a bell for dinner. They want you to shut up and sit down and put your paper on the left and your pencil on the right. They want you to obey. People don't naturally do this. People resist this. We are animals, and they act like that is bad. Is a dog bad? Is a lion bad when it kills to feed its cubs? Is a bass bad when it eats a minnow or a frog, or is he just being a bass? And if you go try to put a rope around a buffalo's neck and lead him where you want him to go, what will he do? He'll stomp your guts out. Does that make him bad? I mean, he leaves you alone. He eats grass, he takes a crap, and he makes more buffalo. He only stomps on you if you try to take him away or hurt him. Or you try to hurt his herd, right? So what we do when we want a buffalo, we can move around, control milk, kill for meat when we want to, or breed when we want to for more meat and milk. We turn the buffalo into a stupid, domesticated cow. A cow that will let us do anything we want to it. One so stupid, it eats, drinks, and breeds when we tell it to. How we tell it to, the way we tell it to. We call this domestication, and that is their goal for us, fully domesticated humans. And like I said, that might not be exactly the way that my dad put it, but he'd said it often enough in different ways that that's how I remember it. That's what I've taken forward in life from the lessons that my father taught me. And, yeah, it might sound crazy to be telling a nine-year-old this, um, and, and maybe telling a nine-year-old this is crazy, but the concept isn't crazy. It makes a lot of sense. Even when I was nine, I wasn't your typical nine-year-old, but I, I kind of understood this. But what I can tell you today is our people are so domesticated now, this whole concept they're going to lock people up or whatever, they don't even have to do it. People move around like free-range herds of cattle at the whims of the powers that be. What I want to talk about today is, what the hell do we do about that? What do we do about that? There's, there's a concept out there called rewilding, and I like the concept. But if you really want to rewild, as in be what humans were before the rise of civilization, it's kind of difficult, and maybe you don't want to. Like, the idea sounds very fanciful and romantic, but most of us don't want to live like Tarzan. We don't want to swing around in trees and live with apes and, and 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 live 100% off the land, where we can club with a stick or stab with or club with a club with a club or stab with a stick, you know, or dig out from underneath a rotted log. I, I mean, I don't I don't mind the fact that I have an air conditioner. It doesn't bother me. I like the things in my life that we would consider luxuries, especially as long as we're understanding that those things indeed are luxuries and not necessities. If if we try to be fully wild, if we try to rewild as a species, there's some problems with it beyond just do we even really want to. How about is it even realistic? Except for a few places where some indigenous peoples are truly kind of Left alone. I mean, you, you can't even say this about, let's say, Native American reservations in America. They, they really don't have the kind of land availability and freedom to, to live the way that their forefathers did. They just kind of have this token piece of land that, in some ways, makes them worse off. Other ways, it's an advantage. But in some ways, it makes them worse off. Now, one of the poorest demographics in the country, with these vast spe- spaces of land, that are worth billions of dollars, and yet they're one of the, you see what I'm saying? There are some places in the world where some indigenous peoples truly have the ability to live the way that they used to, mostly. Very, very rare. Very, very small, like probably less than a quarter of a percent of humanity. And you probably can't go there and join in. There, there's really not a way where you can just kind of slip off into the wilderness with, with with a band of fellow wild humans and live the way humans lived for a long time, even if you wanted to. So what's the middle ground? To me, that's, that's going feral. That's going feral. We take a lesson from the pig. The pig has been domesticated for thousands of years, thousands upon thousands of years. Man figured out that, hey we get pigs when well, they're itty-bitty before they know that they can tear the shit out of us, we feed them as little baby pigs and we take care of them like dogs, we can train them to where they're a lot less dangerous than they are when they're wild and they're a lot more dependent upon us. And long before there were pig pens and the pigs stayed in the pen and the way we do it now, we kind of free-ranged pigs and we handled them like dogs. And if we fed them enough and we treated them right, they tended to come home. There's I know people right now that raise pigs this way. That they, and they don't have many of them disappear. They raise I know some people who raise guinea hogs this way. Pretty much they let them out every day and they go up into the woods and they forage on their own and they come back. Sometimes they disappear. And, and, and there will always be some that disappear and there will always be some that just come back, even though coming back is probably a bad idea for the pig long term. Sooner or later that pig's going to be ham and bacon and sausage. And it would be in that pig's best interest that when it was given the opportunity to leave that it left. Now, if it hung around on the outskirts and didn't cause a lot of trouble, kind of just blended into the wilderness and took from the farm what it could take without being made out to be a bandit and being shot as a true wild animal, it could actually begin to thrive, and it might actually begin to have lots of little pigs. And eventually you might have this entire tribe of pigs that lives right next to humanity that even though they're able to be shot on sight, and plenty of people are willing to do it, they thrive. That's the pick. And we can't be literal with these analogies. I'm not suggesting that we actually live like that. I'm saying we we live similar to that. That we start to resist this impulse that society has to make us all conform to this pattern of domestication. Think about what you're looking for from a, a a good domestic farm animal, a cow. You don't want a cow that will kick you, do you? And when you if it's a, if it's a you know a cow, it's not a bull, it's a cow. When it's time to milk that cow, you want that cow to happily walk into a barn and get milked. You want that cow to actually be relieved by being milked. You want that cow to feel like, hey, this is a good thing for me. You want that cow to obey you and do whatever you want until that cow no longer makes a good milk cow. And even though it's not the best quality beef, it's time to put a bolt through her head or a bullet in her brain and go ahead and sacrifice and use it for meat. That's fine for cows. I don't actually have a problem with that with cows. That's, that's what cows are. We've actually created the cow. There's no wild cows. We have buffaloes like my dad was talking about. We have other bovine species. But nothing that looks like the cow that we milk actually exists in the wild. We created, out of the the primitive genetics, we have selectively bred these animals to be this way. And that cow doesn't have enough intelligence to understand what we've done. Pig doesn't really understand what we've done, but just hasn't forgotten what it is. And there has been intentional breeding of humans over time. In many different ways. Slavery, Slave owners did it. But if you think about things like caste systems arranged marriages and and what we know of them today is a fraction of what they were at one time there were times when people arranged marriages were maybe arranged by the the village chiefs or some council thereof and you got to think they kind of thought about what they were doing a little bit and guided kind of they understood that if you know two people that looked a certain way had babies they'd look similar to them they didn't understand all the couldn't have made a punnet square for you but they kind of understood this. But in time, what was done with humans was less about selective breeding, because in the end, we pretty much choose our own mates, and more about training. You train them. So you, how do you train a cow if you have a great big ranch, and you want the cattle to stay on the ranch, and you're not doing, you know, using electric wire and stuff like that to do paddock shifting, you're doing old school ranching. You have 10,000 acre ranch, you just let the cows go, and you kind of find them whenever you need them, and... Round them up, maybe push them over into one area. But your paddocks are huge; they're hundred acres or thousand acre paddocks. Then you kind of keep them in that kind of contained area so that you can find them when you need to. You train them to come to a bell. You feed them. You give them a bell. That way, you go in that area and ding dong, ding dong. Here come the cows. But if you uh, if you know anything about ranching, you know that one of the most important things is closing gates behind you. And you might want to keep cattle in a specific area. And you might not actually want a gate, because every time you go through it, you have to deal with it. Maybe the only thing you actually care about not going through that area is cow. So instead of putting a gate in, they'll put in a thing called a cattle guard. And a cattle guard is just an opening in the ground with a bunch of pipes going across it with a gap between each pipe. And it's very strong steel pipes, or they can be more like like a sewer gutter as well, but you usually kind of want them rounded. And that way, you can drive a car or truck right across it. You can train a horse to walk on them right if you do it. It takes some work, but it can be done. But a cow, if it tries to walk across it, their feet slide in there. And you make them where the gap's big enough that it hurts the cow's foot, but it doesn't fall through and break its leg. And really quickly, even though that's wide open, the cows won't go through there because they can't figure out, like a horse can, how to walk across it. Well, the interesting thing is, once cows are trained to that, they're conditioned to it. You can take and put down a concrete slab and paint, paint black stripes on the slab with about the same gap space in between them. And the cow will look at that and say, oh, I know what that is. That's one of those things that hurt my feet. And the cow could walk out anytime they want to, but they don't because they've been trained, they've been conditioned that, that thing, anything that looks that way is to be feared and avoided. And that way you can leave that open and drive back and forth through. Additionally, once a cow begins to understand, hey, this piece of, like, thing hanging here between these poles is is electric, and if I touch it, it will hurt me, they won't touch it. They'll stay away from it. You turn the power off after they're conditioned long enough, they'll never know that it's turned off. Anybody that's ever raised pigs using ElectroFence knows, you better check that fence every day, and you better make damn sure that weeds don't grow up on it and short it out so it stops working, because as afraid as they are of it, sooner or later, they'll test it. And if nothing else, even if they won't test it, at some point, they'll accidentally brush up against it. And when they do and it doesn't shock them, unlike the cows, like, oh, shit, I almost got shocked. I better not do that again. the pigs like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. I screwed up and touched that thing and it didn't hurt me. I, man, I don't want to... Uh, let me try it. Oh, it's... Whatever it is, it ain't working. And that pig will go to rooting and digging and that pig will get out and that pig is gone. But it doesn't run like a, like an escaped prisoner where it just goes as far as it can to get away. It just goes just far enough to find a place to live the way that it wants to live, which is basically the way it was living but without you telling it how. And it goes on about being a pig. What does it do? It finds other pigs. It lives with other pigs. It looks for food. It sleeps. When it itches, it scratches itself on a tree. It makes more pigs. And it doesn't give a damn about anything else in the world at that point except doing what it wants to do. And if you think about it, we say that they're a real problem, but all these horror stories, I've done enough feral hog hunting to tell you that I think they're bullshit, mostly. I guess if you have a field full of corn, that's not a natural thing. A pig can cause a lot of trouble in there. But in general, like on ranches and stuff, I can't actually see that they cause that much trouble. They're just another animal out there. We've wiped out enough animals and enough megafauna on this, this, this continent anyway. They, 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 Some needs to replace it. They just go on about being a pig and they pretty much don't bother you unless you bother them. Hmm. Maybe that's what we need to do. If we try to go fully wild, right, or we try to be what we think of as wild, if we try to be what we think of when we think of humans as animals, which we use as a a bad connotation, a, a negative you know they're crazy like like Donald Trump called MS13 gang members not all immigrants for god's sakes MS13 members uh, animals and the people he was talking about and the things that they do i can understand the sentiment but i i don't find it so much insulting the gang members as i do in, insulting to the animal kingdom cuz animals don't behave that way not if they're in a well balanced ecosystem I've told the story before, but I guess it fits in really good here. So at one point, humans in our attempt to tell nature how nature needs to run realized that we had kind of an overpopulation problem with elephants. We didn't have an overpopulation problem. We had a lack of habitat problem because we destroyed their habitat. Somehow elephants got along just fine. There were never too many elephants until we screwed everything up and took away their habitat. And then we decided we needed to go in and control their population. So we set up these people called cropping officers, which were basically elephant murderers, paid elephant murderers. And what we decided that in our weird way to be compassionate, and that what we should do is kill the oldest elephants first. So we killed the matriarchs and the patriarchs, the ones that were past breeding age. And when we did kill a female, we killed her calf, all her calves. We killed all of them because surviving elephants mourn. And we didn't want that to happen. I'm serious. You read Peter Capstick's work on this, and you can read his lamentations because he used to be a cropping officer. Uh, Alan Savory, who's done so much good work with grazing at one time, was making decisions about which of these elephants to crop. And you can hear him when he talks about it, sound like he indeed is confessing a sin. So we did this. And all of a sudden, these young male elephants started going into villages and killing people. I mean, in the murderous rages. And it took a long time to figure out that when we took away the old bulls, and just think about like a a group of fathers and uncles taking the young boys camping and fishing and giving the man time away from the women. Elephants worked a lot in a similar way. And they would take the young males away. And if the males would start doing things like, hey, let's go down there and see how many villagers we can squish, they would literally beat the shit out of them and basically inform them and however elephants communicate, we don't do that shit. So the wild elephant posed very little daily risk to the non-wild human until we took away the elephant's habitat, and took away the elephant's elders. And when we took away the elders, the youth became violent. The male youth became violent, and the female youth became largely directionless. They didn't really know what their purpose was. And it took two generations of, of, of kind of reestablishing elders for a lot of this imbalance to correct itself. And now in parts of Africa where this was going on, we don't generally have all of a sudden like three rogue male elephants coming in and squishing villagers. It doesn't happen anymore. The older elephants are doing their jobs again, and we understand that we've stopped interfering with it as best we can under the circumstances. That sounds an awful lot like the problems that we have in the world today, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it? How many of our youth... Is that not a perfect description? We have young male youth going around doing things that don't make any sense at a time when equally we have completely pussified an entire generation. We have pussies being violent. If that offends you, you're probably a pussy and you probably are prone to violence. Seriously. Because they don't have the guidance. And we have young women that are so directionless. And I'm not one of these people that say they all should be traditional in the kitchen, barefoot. And what. And I'm not saying all of them are directionless. I'm just saying that is a good description of a large number of these people. And when people are directionless, they're easy to guide. How do you domesticate an animal? You take away its ability to care for itself so that it becomes dependent upon you. How do you domesticate an animal that is in general dangerous? To humans, if humans attempt to control it, think about something like a pig. That's another, we'll go back to the pig, he's a great example of this. If you go out into the woods, and you, I mean, you can go like traditional, full on wild Russian boar, or just feral hog, hog somewhere out in the hill country of Texas, and you get a full grown adult hog and you manage to capture it, you try to put a leash around its neck and lead it somewhere, what the hell is going to happen to you? It will tear you up, it might kill you. Right, it might kill you. Now imagine you were gonna start a farm, and you wanted your stock to come from really strong genetics. Your pigs, you wanted to come and like almost create almost a whole new breed of like semi wild breed pig, and you decided whether it was a good idea or not. You decided I'm gonna trap pigs. I'm gonna trap pigs that live here on my ranch already and I'm going to use them as my breeding stock. What are you going to trap? What are you going to target? What you're going to do is you're going to set a trap and you're going to look for the smallest piglets you can get and you're going to kill their parents unless you also want a hunting operation so you release them. But one way or another, you're going to take the smallest baby you can get. If you can get them before they're even weaned, and you have to bottle feed them, that's best, right? You're not gonna to try to take even a six month old pig that weighs sixty pounds that can gut you and, and try to turn that into a trainable domestic animal, are you? No, you're gonna get a baby. And you're gonna make you're gonna put it in a cage. And even if it can do a little bit of forage, you're not gonna let it have the ability. Even if you want to eventually do almost all forage to get this done, you're going to take away the ability for that animal to get its own food and to get its own water to the point where that animal, every day when it sees you as a person come, goes, my food and water's coming. My food and water's coming. My food and water's coming. And then you're going to breed it. And you're going to take its babies away from it if you really want to get this done. You're going to do this for three or four generations You're not going to let the sow even have the piglet long enough to wean it. You may even bottle feed the damn things before they start opening their eyes. It'll be more work, but you will end up with piglets that grow into pigs that have no fear of humans and no aggression toward them. And when you want them to do something that's not what a wild pig would ever be willing to do, they'll happily do it. You have to separate them from the adults that give them the example of how a pig really behaves. Got it? Got it? So why in the hell do you think our country has pursued a policy that's made single-parent homes the norm? I mean, they really don't want everybody in an orphanage that they have to take care of, but if you separate the family, so there's only one parent, and that parent has to go off and earn a living, it has to go off and forage in the, in the, in the area that you've given it to forage in, and now there's one or two baby piglets, and call them humans now, in the home, and there's only one parent to do all of the going out and coming back, the parent and the, therefore the child becomes dependent upon whom? The farmer. Well, who's the farmers in this country? Government and the industry. And what do they want from you? Your money, and your energy, and your attention. And they want you to police your fellow livestock. Our entire system of government has become a system of tax farming. They're tax farmers. They farm tax revenue... The way that a farmer farms milk and eggs from chickens and cows. And it's exact and it's even worse because they go out and borrow credits for milk and eggs based on the, the production of future generations of the tax cattle and chickens. That's what debt that's what national debt is. When our nation borrows money from whoever the creditor may be, whether it's your grandma buying a bond or the Chinese, or the English, or the Italians, or anybody that buys a bond from the American government, they know full well we don't have the money right now to pay the debt. You don't borrow money that you intend on paying back tomorrow, unless it's really short-term debt. you certainly going to 10-year bonds. If I wanted to spend a million dollars today, I wouldn't borrow a million dollars today and agree to pay it back over 10 years with interest on it. And I wouldn't keep refinancing that debt to longer and longer terms if that's what I wanted to do. I'm borrowing money I don't have. Even if I have the money, I want to do something with the money I have and I want to do other things with the money I don't have yet. So yeah, I could pay cash for the car, but then I wouldn't be able to get the other car. So I want two cars. So I borrow the money to buy both of them and use some of the money I have as a down payment. See, we break that down. That's how your government borrows money. But when you go out and borrow money, let's say to buy a car or a house, you're issuing a promise to pay, and the lender is lending it to you based on that promise to repay. What do they look at to determine if you can repay the money or not? What's your income and what is your track record of paying your bills? Okay. When you when you when you borrow when you loan money to a government, that government is saying, this is how many people we have, and this is how many people will have that are new people going into the environment to work over the next 30 years, we tax their income, therefore our credit is good for this much. We can pay you back tomorrow with the money that children pay us in taxes that have not even been born yet. That's tax farming. That's why they have to domesticate you because they need you to do the things that they want you to do so you will produce the product that they're looking for. And have you ever noticed that in a, in a situation where animals become wholly domesticated, they start to police each other? You ever see one animal kind of push another animal, like, hey, that's not what we do here, just like the elephant does in the wild, except they're doing it instead of because they're the animal that they are, they're doing it because, well, that's, that's how we get along here. Have you ever noticed that... If you look, you know, all the prison movies and stuff, when you get through to some of the realism in it, that there's a police system within the prison, that as bad as things can be, they could be worse, but the prisoners themselves get to a point where it's like, listen, we're stuck here. There's even rules for how and when you can take a shit in prison. I'm not kidding. You want to get your ass shanked in prison? People think all oh, those. You go break a phone in a prison. And get your ass shanked for that. Because you were mad and smashed it. I'm not kidding. Because the prisoners policing themselves. Because they have to. And that's you as a society. As you become more domesticated, you're more willing to start policing the others around you, even when you don't technically have any police authority. When you see people screaming at other people because they didn't wear a mask, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at a response that has become so bloody conditioned that the person doing it actually can't help themselves. The conditionings work so well that they believe everything the farmer tells them about how they're supposed to act. And they believe that it will be complete chaos and breakdown if all the other tax cattle don't behave the same way. And what that means is you can't go feral fully in front of them if you want to be productive. It means you need to carve out your own little place to do your own little thing where they're not allowed to come. And that can be symbolically or it can be physically. It depends on on how you do it. But there's no point in running out and trying to explain to all the rest of these tax cattle how domesticated they are. Because they'll defend it to the death. They'll kill you for trying to free them. A little bit of the Matrix movie there, and it's true. When, When someone's not ready to go feral and you try to make them go feral, they'll kill you. Because they can't see how I can survive without this hand that's feeding me. That's also milking me and drawing my blood off the back end. They've made the deal because they've been so conditioned. And the more they were kept away from parents and PAC members who think like real humans, the more subject to that they are. Again, this is a good reason if you're a tax farmer to destroy the traditional family unit. Because even if the parent knows better and wants to, Anybody out there that's had to be a single parent knows it wears you out. It wears you out. You're just doing what you can do to get by, and I just need you, Johnny and Susie, to go along and, damn it, just listen to the teacher because I'm trying to make sure you eat. Almost every single parent's had some version of that conversation. And that kid's resisting? They're resisting Because some piece of them is that wild being that they are. That true nature of the human that they are. And there's nothing bad about it. It knows this conformity is wrong. But the farmer has separated the suckling pig and is feeding it with a bottle and will deny it the bottle if it doesn't obey. And will put it in a separate cage if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do with the other little piggies. That's what's going on. And it's not a grand scheme. No, no. Society just kind of has developed this way as people in charge figured out what works. To the point where the pigs are teaching the pigs to not be pigs. They're teaching the pigs to be cows. If you follow me. That's our society. So let's talk a little bit about how we rewild and become feral humans. One, we separate ourselves from the system that makes us dependent. And we create systems for ourselves that are self-sufficient, self-reliant. As soon as you do that, as soon as you cut the tie there, you're the pig that just figured out that wire is not actually electric. They turned it off. It shorted it out. I need to get out of here. And the biggest way we get out is we develop a business or an income source that's not subject to somebody else's whims. Now we're outside the wire. I've got my systems of self-reliance and self-sufficiency set up and now I've got the ability to procure more food, food and drink and shelter, the things that I need to be healthy and happy I've got that, and I've got it in a way that they just can't turn it off on me. Wait a minute. Screw the farmer. I don't need his ass no more. But you know what? He plants pretty nice fields. Maybe I'll sneak in here once in a while and eat some chestnuts. That's what the pig does. And that's how we need to start behaving. Our ancestors were hunter-gatherers. All of us. Our ancestors were all hunter-gatherers. Society spent more time with humans living in small, voluntary-associated groups, living off the land, than we've spent doing anything else. Our history is more that than it is anything else. I mean, there's nothing we've done longer as a species other than live as a hunter-gatherer. And let's just think a little bit about how a hunter-gatherer society lives. Number one, they don't live alone. The hermit model is probably not the way to go, being all by yourself. Humans are social creatures, and if you think about it, most animals are. Most animals are, and the higher the intelligence level of the animal, the smaller the group tends to become. If you look at something with like the most rudimentary form of intelligence, you're looking at an insect with a hive mind, like ants or bees. They live in, in, in the hundreds of thousands to millions, all controlled by one. And as animals kind of go up in intelligence, we move to something like you know, a herd animal, like a wildebeest. Uh, they're going to live in very large groups for protection. But I'm sure if like two animals don't get along in the wild, they kind of find a, their own place in the herd away from each other. They're not forced together the way we force domesticated animals to be together. And then as you get up to higher levels of intelligence, like something like a lion, you end up with prides that number, you know, in the double digits, the low double digits, 10, 12, sometimes less than double digits. And then those prides will operate kind of in a a larger, almost tribe-like action. They don't really have a lot of interaction, Though as cubs are kind of cast out as males and go off to spread genetics, they go to other prides that are in that general area, and they all kind of recognize each other's territory, and they kind of operate in kind of this larger group. Well, humans are a little more evolved than that, so we can get along in even larger groups. We don't have to kill each other just to have a mate the way the lion does. Our sons don't have to grow up and kill us, you know, in order to uh, to take over uh, the next generation we, we don't work that way we're a little more sophisticated but we kind of work that way in that we we want to be together so if we think about the way hunter-gatherers operated for the majority of human history that's kind of what we did we formed things that were more like a village than a city or a town in, in general the number that a lot of anthropologists resort and social uh, social scientists come up with is about 200 people is, is about the size of a settlement where everybody can kind of know everybody else that's there. And reputations are something that kind of follow us through the whole society. You go to a town with 200 people, you cannot disappear there. Immediately you're recognized as not being one of us. And either you become one of them or you're always an outsider. When you go to a town that's got a 1,000 people in it, that's pretty small. You can just kind of blend in and know uh, some guy that moved there, whatever. People just forget about you, no time at all. You know, where I grew up in, in Minersville, is a pretty small little town in Pennsylvania. You walk down through Minersville, people, do I know you? you might notice they, they see you and they didn't they don't know you, but they really didn't care who you really were. But you walk through a town with 100 people in it, and they don't know who you are. They don't just notice that they don't know you. They want to know who you are because they know each other that well. And that's kind of like the size of the group. You know, you're looking at little groups. John uh, John Bush has built his freedom cell model on eight. That brings enough diversity, but it's much easier to resolve conflict in a group of eight people as a group of 12. It becomes exponentially more difficult. And those groups within groups form larger groups, right? But it's up to about 200 people where you can kind of know everybody. So it's just an interesting thing to think about. But one way or another, we need others. And the tightest bonds are generally between family and then between families. So what I mean by that is you'll have this really tight bond if you look in small towns where where people still can live somewhat normal, somewhat close to this. A family will be tight. And I'm talking beyond just brothers and sisters and mom and dad. I'm talking grandparents, uncles, cousins, whatever. But generally speaking, you'll find some sort of really strong synergy between two or three families that'll make those larger groups up. That you know you can always can't like I'm telling you, and where I grew up, if you were a spirit, the Spirico clan, the Slifko f- f- clan went way back. The debsky fan went way back. Um, We all had kind of these interrelationships of the families. And if you knew someone, you didn't even know them. But when they said who they were, and even they carried a different last name of, well, I'm kin too, type of thing. Oh, well, you're already kind of one of us. This is a natural way humans kind of relate with each other. And so that's how we related with each other as, as early humans before someone got the idea that we could be in charge of people and get lots of people together to live in one place called a city, and that was all built on agriculture. And so I think one of the mistakes that a lot of times we make as homesteaders, and it's okay to have kind of a big garden plot and and, and grow some storage crops, but maybe that's not the best way to design the system as a whole, like a micro-farm, because then we're practicing agriculture. In our early societies, we just kind of went out and got what we needed. We didn't take more than we needed. Early man did not hunt animals to extinction. The, 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 the concept that that's true is a myth. It's been demonstrably proven so, and I don't have time to bust it today. But the belief that, like, for instance, that it was early humans that came here uh, to North America with ladles that hunted the mammoth into extinction is the stupidest thing you could You have to be stupid to believe it. Look what it took to do that to the buffalo, the technology and effort it took. But supposedly small groups of hunter-gatherers running around with a sharp stick thrown by another stick hunted these 11,000-pound animals to extinction. It's just stupid. We only took what we needed because it was easier that way. As long as we believed that we would have enough, We took enough for today and maybe tomorrow, and we went on about our existence, being with other humans and making more humans. That's what we did. And we wandered. And when we were in a a time and a place of plenty, we didn't worry a lot about it. Imagine when you knew the plants you could eat, the animals that you could find to eat, the fish that you could find to eat, the shellfish you could pull off of a rock and throw into a hot fire and eat, and that was all around you, you felt pretty secure with your food, and unless something like a famine or a drought or some or serious weather impacted. You felt pretty safe. So when you when you were hungry, you just got up off your butt and went out and found something to eat. I think we should design our homesteads like that. That's what I. That's the shift I've made in my life over the last ten years. I try to have little bits of stuff everywhere, all the time. That's why I've even put in the little garden ponds and stuff. I want to eat fish today, go out and catch fish. I don't live in a place where I have a nice trout stream running through my backyard or something like that. I can't put in a great big pond, so I built something analogous to it. I think that's, that's our first step is, 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 is forming community with other people that want to be feral and creating as much of a modern hunter-gatherer style into our lives as we can. So that we can feed ourselves and take care of our children and raise our children. And so we can basically tell the world to go to hell. And I think we've become convinced by media and hype and, 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 and novels and everything else, uh, and, and, and you know, prepper porn, which is you know the, the, the apocalypse novels and shit like that, that I don't really have a lot of love for anymore. I really don't. Um, really no interest in it at all, honestly. Because I don't think it's based on reality. But we've convinced you, you've got to have a couple hundred acres to live like that. I live on three. I live on three. I live 20 minutes from one of the, one of the biggest cities in America. I mean, it's small compared to some. But I mean, it is it is a major American city, Fort Worth, Texas. And yet, I can go out on my back porch and the whole world doesn't really mean much to me. I have my own little place so I can be feral here. And that doesn't mean that I have to stay here. I can go to other places and be feral, too. I think we need to start learning the, the traditional skills of hunting and fishing and trapping and land navigating again. You know, I grew up at a time where, like, everybody just learned that. I grew up where all the kids went off in the woods. And I'm not talking about the little woodlot behind Farmer Tom's house. I'm talking about off in the woods, disappeared all day long. We all knew how to navigate. We learned how to find our way around and we learned how to communicate with other kids and where we would be and when we would meet and when we would be there. We lived a very tribal life. These families that I'm talking about and kind of our extended communities, we even had big things that we would do that were not organized by anybody other than ourselves or self-organized and nobody ever really made a big deal about it, but we would do things like in blueberry season, we'd all go pick blueberries. And then we'd bring all the blueberries back and sort through all the bad ones and kind of divide them up, and every family took home blueberries. We did it with wild strawberries. We did it with blackberries. We organized hunting parties. Go out and do deer drives. We, we went mushroom hunting in groups. No one said, hey, guys, I got an idea. We should set up a mushroom hunting group. It's like, hey, man, you want to go mushroom hunting? You know where mushrooms are? Yeah. I've never gone before. I'll teach you. They, I mean... It was just that simple. We need to live like that as much as we can, because here's what I want you to understand. So many people today, when it comes to liberty and freedom, they kind of sort of understand this concept I'm talking about today, going feral. They understand the tax farm that they live on. They understand the control that they're in. They wouldn't use the word domestication, but they kind of really do understand that they've been domesticated. They want to go wild to some degree again. And what happens is they run right up to the fence. They touch it. They see it's not electrified. And they turn around to all the damn cows and go, Hey, we're pigs. Let's go be pigs together. And all the cows look at them like they're crazy. They look at them like they're nuts. What the hell would you want to do that for? And instead of leaving and go and find the other pigs that actually left, they stick around with all the pigs that are actually acting like cows because they've been domesticated fully, trying to convince them to come along. Pigs that go feral don't do that. Trust me, There are as much as the pig goes feral, there are pigs that live like cows. You could open up the gate, have 50 pigs come back, there's only 10 of them, but those 10 won't leave. They'll sit there like domesticated dogs, domesticated cattle, and they'll just hang out. And if you keep breeding those ones, eventually you get to a point where you have a bunch of them that don't want to go nowhere. And now you're screaming at those pigs to come with you instead of just doing what the pig that's really going to go feral does. See, that's the person that's half in, half out. Go. Leave. Run away. But don't run off into the wilderness. Build your own life so that you're running to something instead of away from something. And you'll find as soon as you start doing this, that instead of worrying about, well, I want a community or whatever, a community will start to form around you. It will happen. People will want to know how to be like you. Because the best thing you can do, because we don't. this isn't a perfect analogy. What do we do with feral pigs? We shoot them. But if you go live like this, somebody might take a shot at you a time or two, it can happen, but mostly you're kind of left alone. So you can do it right in front of the ones that are still branding themselves. The damn cattle are branding themselves at this point. You see people getting a politician's face tattooed on their body. That is the, camp, camp, the, the cattle branding themselves. But you can sit right in front of them and just live your way. Set up this system for yourself that lets you live as a modern, modern hunter-gatherer, which is the natural state of the human being. We, we've gotten to a point where we think of kind of like domesticated and wild animals. Like, that's the, that's the dichotomy we've created. And it's another false dichotomy. Animals really aren't wild. That's a concept that we... How do we even come up with this concept? How do we even come up with the concept of a wild animal? What does that even mean? Before we decided to alter nature, one way or another... Weren't all animals "quote unquote" wild when humans walked the planet in skins, carrying spears and atlatls, and and, and it had perf- you know kind of their, the highest level of technology was the ability to make and move and keep fire, and they lived pretty decent, but that's how they lived, and there was no farms, and there was no ranches, and there was no agriculture. At that point in time, was not every animal a "quote unquote" wild animal? But did we we, do you think we even had a word for it in our primitive forms of language? Do you think we would differentiate between oh, this bird is wild and this bird is domestic? Was there even a need for that description? There's no wild animals. There's natural animals. And there's animals that are unnatural. That's the two things you have. We have animals that literally we have bred them from wild stock, as we call it now, to be a full new, almost species. We have domestic animals that we can say, oh, this animal came from that animal. But the two look nothing alike. Look at all of the varieties of chickens that we keep. None of them look like the the Asian jungle fowl they came from. None of them. They don't look anything like those birds. That's where they came from. Why is one wild and one domesticated? Why don't we say that one is domesticated and one is natural? And again, do these wild animals behave like when you hear somebody like they're like a, when you describe a person as being like a wild animal? Do the, Do wild animals actually behave the way that dysfunctional humans behave? They don't. You know, you might show this thing of these two lions fighting with each other, but lions are less warlike than humans. Lions wish to avoid a conflict. They only have a conflict when it's necessary for their species to continue. And the conflict is short-lived. Two prides of lions don't go to war with each other. They don't. Most animals don't kill their own. I mean, lions occasionally will in those situations. Most of the time, they don't kill each other. If a bear kills something, it doesn't kill it because it doesn't like it, unless it feels like it's threatened in defense. I think most humans would say when a, when a, when a human kills another human in defense, and they really think that they were threatened, not offended or something, but like literally my life was at risk or the life of my my child was at risk, and I kill to defend that life. That's that's okay. Bears either kill for that or they kill to eat. Yeah, you a know story. a grizzly bear just went through a, a, a national park and killed all the deer because it was bored, right? And if you ever come up with an example of an animal that will tend to overkill, almost because it's bored, what what is the classic animal that does that? A domesticated cat. The domesticated cat will often kill what it doesn't eat because it's bored. Because it's not able to be... Trust me, feral felines don't do that. When a domesticated cat goes feral and it lives off of what it can hunt, it doesn't kill shit and leave it behind. Wild animals are not what we have made them out to be. They're simply creatures that exist in their natural state. We've made wild a negative. We've made wild a negative because it conflicts with our desire to control things, to pacify things. Why in the world would you want to take a wonderful animal like, let's say, a white-tailed deer and make it behave like a cow? So that you can farm it? That's the only reason. That's the only, even if you wanted to live off deer meat, why in the hell Unless you needed a more reliable, abundant supply, would you ruin something as simple as leave it alone and go shoot one when you need it? So why would you do this to humans? Because you want to control them. It's the only reason to do it, because you want to control them. It wasn't because they needed controlling. Civilization has created the biggest mass murders in history. The largest mass murderers in history did the murders legally under their own laws that they passed. They were all done by government. No mass murderer in history holds a candle, you know. If you look at like a Ted Bundy or somebody like that, none of them hold a candle to the the, the mass murders committed by governments. So it's not like by domesticating people. And putting them into these civilizations, we've reduced humans killing humans. We've industrialized it. I'll tell you what. There's a there's a series that's on um, Curiosity Stream called and it might be other places called Apocalypse World War One. You watch that if you can handle it. It's all colorized and what have you, and it's all very realistic. It's, it's what actually happened and how terrible it all was. You go watch that, that documentary alone, and you make the case to me after that that civilization has been a net positive against humans killing humans. You won't be able to. It was only done so that people could profit at the expense of their fellow man. That's why we did it, so that somebody could be in control. And it doesn't mean that we can't have something that we would look at from a distance and refer to it as a civilization. But when we have this system that we do now, we're not going to... You see, people, I want to fight it. I want to resist it. You're not going to. It's like trying to fight a hurricane. It's like trying to resist a hurricane. If a hurricane's coming, you get out of the way. That's what you do. You get prepared for it as best you can, and you get out of the way when you need to. Because a hurricane's going to hurricane. That's what they do. Well, this system that we have is going to domesticate humans, it is going to dominate humans, and it's going to control humans. Your only escape is to get out of the farm and into the wild at whatever level makes the most sense for you and your desires. However, you can, and to me, that's food systems, that's income systems, that's creating an environment where I can be my own little village, and that's finding others that want to do the things that I want to do. And I don't do that by saying, "Hey, guys, let's go form this 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 uh, this cooperative of anarchists." I do that by saying, "Hey, dude, that lives two houses down the road from me. You raise cows? Yeah, I want to buy a half a cow from you." I don't, ha- I don't have enough space, and I don't have enough need. Me and my wife live here. We feed my grandkids once in a while and have people. But really, it's two people. One cow for two people. That's a lot of cow. I grow my own meat, and I have other sources and shit. I want to buy half a cow from you. Can you find me one of your customers to split a cow with? Hey, dude, nice to meet you. My name's Jack. We're going to split a cow. We're going to buy it from Bill here. That's That's... We, I don't need to explain to Bill that it's important to me to know the guy that produces my food, so I'm looking for him. I just need to go, Bill, you, you... Okay, yeah, I'm in. Let's do this thing. Let's get this done. How do you handle this? Oh, you got a butcher? Oh, I know that guy, too. He butchers my turkeys for me. Great. So how does it work? Okay, you'll take them down there, and I'll sign for the meat. Okay, yeah, okay. Done. We don't need to have some grand scheme. We don't even try to change the world. We don't need to agree upon, you know, which politician to hate the most. All we need to agree upon is he grows a cow and I eat the cow and I pay him and compensate him for the cow. That's it. Now we got a bond. And there's other things that we'll be able to do together and we'll choose when to and when not to interact. And basically, otherwise, we'll leave each other alone. Or leave us alone code of the goose, man. Leave us, we don't want to be alone, we just want to be left alone. That's how simple all this is. And I know that maybe I haven't given you a lot of specifics today, but the overriding concept is so important if you want freedom in your life, because there's no sovereignty without mental sovereignty. I think I told you that the first time like nine years ago. You have to be free in the mind before you can be free in the body. And you can't be free of someone that's controlling you until you understand the mechanism of control and decide to opt out of it. And decide to opt out of it. And I don't know why, but I've got to talk about something right here at the end that's just bugging me. Because I have so much respect for the critter that I'm about to talk about. The dog. The dog. I think the dog is an example of interspecies evolution where we co-evolved with another species by our choice. I don't think that humans really did to the dog what we did to the pig or the cow. I'm sure maybe at times we started by stealing some wolf pups or coyote pups or something like that, but I think in general canines ended up deciding they wanted to be our partners in the world. They wanted to walk with us. And that's why our relationship with canines is different than any other animal that humans have a relationship with. Now, I know there's some people that are walking around teacup chihuahuas in a purse or whatever. I'm not talking about that. Real dogs. Real dogs. And the way that real dogs behave and the way they interact with humans and the way that they've actually become so joined with us that they behave differently than wild canines. If you go get a wolf pup, you can raise it like a dog, and it, it, in a lot of ways it will be a dog. You can do it like a coyote. You know what they don't do? It's really weird. Scientists have actually investigated this. When a human points, they don't look where we point. It takes multiple generations of selective breeding just to get that. To hell with how they look. Just to get an animal that will look to the human, and when the human points, it will look, well, what's over there? My dogs are like, hey, look over there. And they see me point. What's he pointing at? What's he pointing at? We co-evolved. And that's interesting to me because what it shows is that true voluntary association exists in nature outside of just humans. Outside of just humans. the, the Anthropologists believe that the first canines and humans... That came together were canines that maybe weren't quite fitting in with their pack that started following humans around and associating them with food and willingly became partners. And humans started to see the value of the dog. The dog kills the rats in the camp, the dog barks and the dog makes noise, the coyote, the dingo, whatever. And eventually the bond was not food, it was affection. As much as my dogs love food, what they crave more than anything else is attention and affection. A dog likes to be pet. That's a voluntary association. And if we can learn from that, if we can learn from that, we can stop trying to force associations and let them form naturally and voluntarily. And it's it's the way to be, in my opinion. And it's a natural way to be. And it is not... Going to work in in a form of mass domestication. In many ways, the dog is domesticated by choice. If we want to even call the dog domesticated, is the dog even not wild? If we take away the negative connotation of wild, the concept that if you have a wild animal in your home, you're an idiot. That you should know, like if you have a parrot that's been domesticated, okay, that's okay. But if you go out and capture a wild animal, it can hurt you, you can hurt it, it's not, right? If we take that away and say, it's a natural state of being. Are dogs in a natural state of being when they coexist with us? I say yes, and I say we can learn from it in the way that we should be thinking about how we interact with others. I hope today's show was interesting for you. It was a little different than usual, but uh, man, go feral because that's exactly what the goal is. Your full and complete submission, domestication, and pacifying you to pacify you to will you will not resist what authority tells you, and that's why the other cattle get mad when you do. That's why they shriek when you refuse to comply with what you're told. No matter what the issue is, it's always the same response. The other monkeys start because we're more like monkeys than we are cattle. The domesticated monkeys. Throw shit at each other all the time, but the only time they agree is when you will not comply with what the head monkey says, and then they all throw the shit at you. And as I've said before, the only way to not get shit on you in a shit-throwing contest is do not participate. Carve out your own hunter-gatherer existence, whatever that means for you, and build upon it and be what you truly are. Instead of being feral, instead of being wild, be a natural human. And with that, let's wrap up with the song of the day. I'm, I'm doing this week, I'm doing my own songs instead of uh, John Adams songs. And I wanted a song that kind of caught the spirit of what I was talking about today. And it really isn't a good one. It really isn't. I mean, I tried to look for songs about you know, rewilding or wild things and all. And of them really seem to catch it up. But I found kind of like the epitome of like an 80s song. Uh, by Corey Hart don't worry it's not sunglasses at night that was a stupid song probably his best his most successful one but it was stupid um no he had one other really big hit and it was really f- you know for the type of music it is it was a great song it's called never surrender and even though this is kind of really more about like a relationship in, in this song is what it comes off like it's it's really right in keeping with what we talked about today. The reason that you eventually are able to domesticate an animal is because it surrenders. It surrenders to you. You break its will. You take a marvelous animal like a wild mustang, a horse, that can kill you. Literally kill you in seconds if it wants to. And over time, with proper conditioning, we even call it, you break... You saddle break the animal, and now it will let you climb on its back, and it will carry you where you want to go, because you've broken its wildness. And remember, we talked about today that wildness isn't really wild. It's natural state. You've broken it from its natural state. And any animal that was born natural and turned into domestic, at some point made a conscious choice that it was easier to be broken than to be free. It's your choice. And even if you've made the choice to be broken, you can go feral. You can make the choice to be free, and you can never surrender. With that, has been Jack Spear. Go with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Just a
1: little more time is all we're asking for. Just a little more time could open closing doors. Just a little uncertainty can bring it down. Goodbye.